Welcome to Open Spaces from Wyoming Public Radio News. I'm Bob Beck. And I'm Caroline Ballard. Coming up, we'll hear about how cops are training to deal with people in a mental health crisis. It's part of our new series on suicide in Wyoming. There was a huge problem. We said, okay, let's fix it locally. What's the best thing that we can offer with what we have? Jackson is considering moving its dual language immersion program into a single magnet school. I'm really passionate about this dual immersion program because it's an amazing opportunity for kids to come together. We'll meet the new University of Wyoming President Lori Nichols and a story on the responsibility of headwater states to protect the health of the Colorado River in times of drought. That ecosystem has to have a certain amount of water if it's going to persist. Those stories and more coming up on Open Spaces from Wyoming Public Radio News. Support for Open Spaces podcast comes from the Hobbs School of Environment and Natural Resources at the University of Wyoming, uwyo.edu slash haub. Welcome to Open Spaces from Wyoming Public Radio News. I'm Bob Beck. And I'm Caroline Ballard. When someone is in a suicidal state, often the first professional responders they see are law enforcement. This is true nationwide, but it's especially the case in Wyoming, where the suicide rate is double the national average and which lacks the mental health resources of more urban areas. For a decade now, Wyoming has been using crisis intervention training to better prepare law enforcement. But the program has been slow to spread, especially in rural areas. Wyoming Public Radio's Miles Bryan reports in the first part of a new series on suicide in Wyoming. A few weeks after Cody police officer Seth Horn went through crisis intervention training, he went out on a call to see a man who was potentially suicidal. Started speaking with this person. Some things were kind of lining up with the report that we got. And then using the training, you know, I asked some very specific questions. Before CIT, Horn might have asked something like, are you planning on hurting yourself? But after the 40 hours of training with other cops and mental health workers, he knew now that that was a vague question. Some suicide methods might not be thought of as physically painful by the person in crisis. So Horn just flat out asked, are you thinking about killing yourself? The man said yes. Those kinds of questions are uncomfortable to ask until you start doing it regularly, and then it, it just kind of flows into the conversation. So it's, it's little things like that with the training that I think make a difference. But when crisis intervention training was first introduced to cops in the small towns of Cody and Powell, there was serious resistance. Brett Lara is a Powell detective. Yeah, I just, I had no interest whatsoever. I will admit that, and I can say that I was very wrong. After six years of seeing the results of CIT, officers in Cody and Powell are big proponents of the training. And the way that it was developed in those towns has become a model for implementing CIT in other small communities. But it's been a long road to get here, and it didn't start with the cops. Teresa Humphreys-Wadsworth is the director of statewide suicide prevention for the Prevention Management Organization of Wyoming. Back in 2009, she was working at a mental health center in Cody. There wasn't much to work with. At that time, in 2009, we didn't even have a psychiatrist. She says Park County, like other rural counties in the state, lacks mental health professionals and psychiatric hospital beds. That means that when cops can't calm someone in a mental health crisis down, they may end up in jail. And Humphreys Wadsworth says the mental health professionals that were there weren't communicating well with law enforcement. 
In Park County in 2012, between 50 and 80 people were treated for serious mental health issues against their will. That year, there were only around 200 such cases in the entire state. The system wasn't working. Really, there was a huge problem. We said, okay, let's fix it locally. What's the best thing that we can offer with what we have? So they tried crisis intervention training, but right away they ran into some problems. CIT in cities like Cheyenne and Casper ran 40 hours over five days. Cody and Powell's much smaller police departments couldn't leave the streets empty to do that. And in Park County, almost everyone was going to have to get the training for it to be effective. You know, in big cities, they have special teams who go out and do this. The challenge with small communities is there's only a couple officers on. They're, you are the team. Cody and Powell broke the training into multiple shorter sessions, and they incentivized it by giving continuing education credits, which law enforcement officers are required to earn. The last big barrier was convincing the cops that CIT was worth their time. Powell Police Chief Roy Eckert says the buy-in largely ended up coming from the fact that the same old strategies just weren't working. We would deal with the frustration as officers of going to the same house time and time and time again because people weren't getting the resources that they need. The Powell Police Department doesn't have hard numbers on how CIT has affected their policing. But Chief Eckert says since CIT, the number of cases labeled as mental health crisis-related has gone up by about 50 percent, even though the total number of calls has stayed the same. That means more cases are being recognized as related to mental health and not shuffled into other designations like public nuisance. Statewide Suicide Prevention Coordinator Teresa Humphreys-Wadsworth says she would like CIT to spread faster, but organizers can't pick up the pace alone. We are community-driven. So the decisions about what happens in community happens in community. Um, uh, Wyoming doesn't like being told what to do. Humphreys-Wadsworth says state organizers don't have the authority to mandate CIT. She says the way it's gone so far is law enforcement agencies send one officer to a training happening somewhere else. They go back and make the case to their coworkers that it's worth doing. And eventually, that department starts planning the training as well. She says Douglas and Riverton are interested in starting CIT using the model developed in Park County, while Gillette just had its first training. But the process can take years. I've lost track of how many times I've actually been arrested, probably 17 at least. Ashley Overfield is the kind of person that has benefited from CIT training. She's 35, and her diagnosis of bipolar and schizoaffective disorder has contributed to frequent run-ins with the Cody police over the years, as well as an attempted suicide. Overfield has ended up in jail many times, and she says in the past, officers could be aggressive, which make her crises worse. But Overfield says there has been a real change in the last few years. Recently, Overfield's mom called the police to do a welfare check on her. Three officers showed up at the house. They were all very calm, very nice, very respectful, and it, it made things a lot smoother, and I was more willing to just go with the flow. Crisis intervention training can do a lot to help someone in a mental health crisis. But the training is time-consuming, complicated to set up, and still isn't common across Wyoming. For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Miles Bryan. Later in the program, we will hear about a community-led suicide prevention program. Changing gears, incoming University of Wyoming President Lori Nichols has a lot to do prior to taking over her official duties. She's already working with trustees and UW officials on a transition plan to get off to a fast start when she begins the job on May 16th. Nichols plans to come to Laramie for a couple of days a month until that time and also plans to stop by the Wyoming legislative session. She's hoping to make a smooth transition. 
Well, one of the things that we're talking about right now is getting the provost search opened, and we would like to get that rolling and have that go through spring semester. So hopefully by the time fall semester starts, we could have a new provost on board as well. Um, one of Another thing that we are talking about is there is work underway on an academic program review, and so I've been involved with some of the discussions about how that will unfold and the timeline around that as well. Longer term, um, I would love to, as soon as I get there, kick off a strategic planning effort to put together a strong strategic plan for the University of Wyoming, probably a five-year plan that will be visionary and that will really work, you know, that will will take Wyoming into the future. You've said in some other interviews that you'd like to see a, a lot more direction and focus. Would would that planning process help with that, and, and or do you have also have some ideas that uh, you'd like to implement right away? No, I think the planning process will help with that. It's there. There's some very exciting things happening um, on campus right now, but I think a, a strong plan will pull those things together and will also bring to light other areas that need to be lifted up that will complement some of the things that are happening. I mean, there's an initiative underway right now with engineering and one with STEM education. There's another one getting going on edu- on teacher education. And those are all great, but I think a plan will really pull them together, focus them, and then see what other areas around them do we need to pay attention to so that the initiative is, is really as strong as it can be. So I'm, I'm excited about the planning effort that I think will give a lot of focus to some of the things underway and probably uncover some things that aren't underway but should be. Incoming University of Wyoming President Lori Nichols chatting with us on the telephone. want to ask you a, a little bit about, uh, you know, how you see some of your strengths and, and what will you be bringing to the university? Well, I, I think the main thing is is that I've spent about 30 years in higher education. Really, all of my experience, maybe with the exception of one year, has been at land-grant universities. And um, so I really think my experience of being a faculty member and then moving up through the ranks of various administrative positions has has given me a lot of a depth of experience, you know, for example, cutting a budget here in South Dakota, uh, bringing up new academic programs, building research. I mean, there's just been so many different things that I've been involved in. And while I don't want to come and and necessarily impose any of those things on Wyoming, I certainly think my experiences will will lend itself to helping Wyoming move in the right direction. I mean, I can draw on the experiences I've had and hopefully help us get uh, get started on some things a little bit faster. Are there some things, though, as you take a job like this that you just really want to do, you really want to see accomplished? I, I know you've probably been chomping at the bit for years looking for this opportunity. Now that you've got it, are there are there one or two things that you could share with us that, boy, I sure can't wait to get a chance to try this? I, you know, my work in diversity has been a passion of mine for years, and I, I, I think probably in my heart of hearts, yes, I would love, I would love to get after doing some really strategic but interesting diversity programming and diversity efforts on campus. Yeah, I think as I interviewed and even as I've heard from people since then, there probably are a few things that would be fun to do right away and I think would be very beneficial to the university. One of the things that's uh, probably a little different than than you've seen before is being a Division One school athletically and also balancing that with academics. I'm kind of curious how you see that fitting in, in your administration. 
right? That that'll be a, a an area of growth for me. I mean, you know, in some ways, people might think that's minor, but I don't think it is at all. Um, you know, first and foremost, I think we are an institution to educate students, and it's really important that academics always be the really the focus on why we exist as a university. But having said that, I fully appreciate the role that athletics uh, plays at a university. I know that alumni and and others are passionate about the University of Wyoming's athletic programs. I also know athletics really rallies people around the institution and really kind of conjures a lot of passion and and excitement about the university. And you need to capitalize on that because you can take that excitement and you can extend it to all corners of the campus. So, um, so you know, I think there is a balance that needs to be played. And I I think always you need to keep the focus on the fact that first and foremost, we're an academic institution. But around that, we build a strong athletic program to benefit the university and obviously to add a lot of enrichment to the state. Well, you have a trustee that is uh, changing gears a little bit that has brought up an idea that that probably is not a big surprise when you look at the fiscal situation facing the state. And that's maybe to take a close look at the degree programs on campus. Have you been through something like that where you've had to do... Uh, I guess, uh, looking very closely at maybe there's a few programs we don't need anymore, uh, that kind of thing? Yes, I have. And, uh, in fact, when I mentioned that one of the things we were talking about this morning was academic programs, that that was the issue we were visiting about. But I have. We have gone through a full academic program review process at SDSU when we, too, were faced with the budget um, downsizing. And we put all of our academic programs under a a uh, review process that was, uh, we we had taken the time, I think, to put together a good process with a set of criteria that made a lot of sense, and we asked each of the programs to review themselves under that criteria to come back with a report. Um, There were quite a few metrics involved in it, so we were asking them to report on the number of majors, the number of graduates, I mean, all kinds of information that, that sheds light on that program and the level of productivity it's had over the last five to ten years. And uh, it was very helpful for us to figure out which of the programs were probably not as productive as they needed to be, quite frankly, not as appealing to students today, maybe weren't as connected to a strong job market like they had been in the past, and were uh, programs that we could really take a critical look at to see if we needed to continue them. And as a result of that, we did identify some programs that we eliminated from our curriculum. I've been through these processes. I've been here a long time, Dr. Nichols, but uh, I've seen a couple of these. And what happens is a lot of people get stirred up, and then you see the constituencies show up, and really two or three disappear, (laughs) and and nothing really happens. You need to be firm on something like this. I wouldn't enter into it saying that we have to cut X number of programs, but I do think what in 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 our minds needs to be that programs need to be at a certain level of quality and productivity or else the resources that are being put into them really are not giving us the results and the outcomes that we need. So so while I, I really think that there needs to be expectations that if a program doesn't rise to a certain level, then you do, in fact, need to look at what, what is a better use of those resources. So it's hard work. I'm not going to say this is easy, but I, as long as it's transparent and people agree to the process and people agree to the criteria, you typically can have much better outcomes if, if you go into it with that in mind. And, and the point isn't necessarily about cutting, is it? It's, it's about strengthening no. what you have. 
That's, it's not so much about we're going to cut so many programs. It's really about the best use of resources. Well, we'll talk with you more in the future. I know we got to let you get back to your current job, but we'll be chatting with you as you come to Laramie. Lori Nichols, a pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you very much. When we come back, the challenges of cleaning up coal-fired power plants. This is Open Spaces. Welcome back to Open Spaces. I'm Caroline Ballard. And I'm Bob Beck. Wyoming gets 90% of its electricity from coal-fired power plants. A series of new regulations from the EPA requires those plants to install new pollution controls. It's either install or close down. Nearly half of the electricity currently generated by coal in Wyoming is now either in compliance with mercury rules or racing towards a compliance deadline. It is an expensive job. For Inside Energy, Reed Frazier of the Allegheny Front takes us inside a plant being retrofitted in Pennsylvania. An hour east of Pittsburgh, the Homer City Generating Station rises like a cathedral out of a valley in Indiana County. You can see its smokestacks and hourglass-shaped cooling towers from miles around. Standing at the foot of one of those smokestacks, Todd Colross barks out a few orders for a small group of visitors. Um, we are going on an active uh, power plant and a construction site. If I ask you guys to move to uh, one area, please do it. Don't argue with me, just do it. Colross is managing the construction project to put new pollution controls in at Homer City. Total cost, $750 million. Why so expensive? James Shapiro is a vice president at GE Energy Financial Services, which owns the plant. So when you ask, like, how expensive, why it's so expensive, I mean, just look at the size of this project. Yeah, the size of this project. Todd Colross points to metal air ducts sitting on the ground. They'll handle the exhaust for the new scrubber system. They're just like the ductwork that pushes air around your house, but they're so big your house could actually fit inside these air ducts. That guy down there weighs about 325,000 pounds. That one there weighs about 310,000 pounds. These ducts will handle the airflow out of the plant's boilers, which burn coal to create electricity. They're big too, the size of small office buildings. It's not like you're take your furnace and put it on steroids. You're trying to heat your house. We're trying to take care of 2 million homes. So there's a big difference. Two million homes. That's how many buildings Homer City can power when it's running at full capacity. Electricity streams out of the plant north to New York State and into the mid-Atlantic grid that powers Pittsburgh, Philadelphia, and Chicago. The new equipment is needed because of clean air rules the Obama administration imposed on the coal industry. These include the cross-state air pollution rule and the mercury and air toxic standards. Though the Supreme Court sent the mercury rule back to the EPA, it's still the law of the land. It's one reason why 200 old coal plants have decided to close. James Shapiro said Homer City faced a crossroads when the new rules were announced. You know, you didn't have much choice. You basically, you either put on the pollution controls or you stop running. So what does it take to keep 100,000 tons of pollution out of the air? To find out, you've got to take a bit of a hike. Okay, we're climbing up six flights of stairs. Feeling it? You okay? We're heading into one of the scrubber units, or technically, the novel integrated desulfurization units. Sulfur in the coal is a big cause of pollution. To take the sulfur out, Homer City is putting in thousands of air filters. 
Cole Ross takes me to a room where there are hundreds of holes in the floor. These holes are where all the bags are going to slide in. Inside each hole will go long tubes covered with fabric bags. They're basically supersized shop vac filters. The way it works is simple high school chemistry. The coal exhaust is acidic, so the plant will spray it with an alkaline powder. The powder will absorb the pollution and particulates in the exhaust. And the filters, or bags, catch the powder. And you got 40,000 between the two units, 40,000 bags. So all the particulate that we collect from the flue gas anyways comes into these bags. The pollution goes into the landfill instead of our lungs. All told, more than 90% of the pollution that would have gone into the air will get taken out of the plant's smokestacks. Cole Ross exits the building and reflects on the project. The timetable on this thing was really tight, and the uh, teamwork was incredible. I, uh, I had my doubts that we were going to make the deadlines when we first started this project, but uh, it surpassed any expectations I had, and uh, it was quite the joy to work on. Best project I've ever been on. The plant is on schedule to meet its final deadline of April. There's one small problem, though. Those new filters don't take out carbon dioxide, the main culprit in global warming. And the EPA plans to limit carbon dioxide emissions from coal plants. So just in case, Homer City is applying for permission to use cleaner-burning natural gas. For the Allegheny Front, I'm Reed Frazier. This is a story about accounting. I know you're already reaching for the dial, right? But wait, this is a story about accounting for your money. Lots of money you may not even know you had. It's buried on federal and tribal lands in the form of natural resources in states like Wyoming and Colorado. In this report for Inside Energy, Amy Martin looks at the controversy around how much companies owe you when they extract those resources and how much you're allowed to know about it. Accounting is not sexy. So let's start with two people who are, Ryan Adams and Taylor Swift. This fall, Ryan Adams released an entire album of Taylor Swift songs. He called it 1989, just like she did. In exchange for using Swift's property, her songs, Adams has to pay her a portion of whatever money he makes from selling that recording. That's known as a royalty. When it comes to natural resources on public lands, the American people are Taylor Swift. We own the property, in this case, coal, oil, and natural gas. The companies that want to extract those resources are Ryan Adams. They pay us a percentage of whatever they make from selling our property. Those funds are our royalties, paid to us in the form of deposits into the federal treasury. To make sure we're paid the right amount of royalties, somebody has to figure out what those resources are worth at the time of sale. That job belongs to Greg Gould, the director of the Office of Natural Resources Revenue, the ONRR. The best way to determine market value for a product is the first true arm's length sale to you know, an unaffiliated party. That phrase, true arm's length sale, is at the heart of the first royalty controversy we're going to explore here. This gets a little wonky, so let's zero in on one example, coal exports. Many coal companies set up subsidiary businesses to transport coal from their mines to ports on the coast. The coal is essentially sold twice, first to the company's own subsidiary at the domestic price, and then to a foreign customer, like a utility, for a price that could be many times higher. 
So which price should we use to assess the royalty payment? Right now, we use the domestic price, but Gould says we should be using the first true arm's length sale, the price the foreign customer pays, not the subsidiary. He says that's how it works in other industries. We just wanted to try and clarify and simplify the regulations and make them consistent across all of the products. The coal industry sees it differently. We would argue that ONRR is trying to make the valuation system much more complicated. Rick Kurtzinger of Wyoming-based Cloud Peak Energy, one of the country's largest coal companies, says it is fair to base the royalty rate on the domestic price because the coal is the same, no matter where it's headed after it leaves the mine. And so a train can be loaded to go to Detroit Edison, or it can be loaded to go to a South Korean power plant. It's comparable coal produced in the same period and of similar quality. But if that comparable coal ultimately fetches a much higher price when it's sold to the South Korean power plant, don't Americans deserve to receive a higher royalty for it? Industry says no. They say the price difference is due to transportation and marketing costs, which they are legally allowed to deduct. But here's the thing. To verify that they're calculating those deductions fairly, we would need to look at their books. And that leads us to the second issue at play here, transparency. Only the ONRR is allowed to review the industry's accounting records. Ryan Adams has to disclose to Taylor Swift exactly how many copies of her songs he sold last year. But when it comes to our natural resources... The American people do not get a royalty report. That's Dan Bucks, former director of the Department of Revenue for the state of Montana. He says the American people have been left in the dark for years. They're not told what they're being paid or not paid. And they should know. They have a right to know. So how much money is at stake here? Some analysts estimate upwards of $100 million in coal royalties are left on the table each year. And Buck says historically, billions of dollars may have been lost. The coal industry disputes those figures. But as of now, no one outside of industry and the federal government can see, lease by lease, exactly what royalty was assessed on a particular sale and the process used to get there. For Inside Energy, I'm Amy Martin. Inside Energy is a public media collaboration focused on America's energy issues. When we come back, we'll find out what may happen to Jackson's popular dual immersion program and a UW researcher takes on cancer. This is Open Spaces. Welcome back to Open Spaces. I'm Caroline Ballard. And I'm Bob Beck. You might think of the Grand Canyon as one of the wildest places in the U.S., but the fact is the Colorado River that runs through that canyon is not wild at all. This river, the Colorado, can be turned on and turned off, down to the last drop, on orders from the Interior Secretary of the United States. This was the first river on Earth to come under complete human control. That's from Cadillac Desert, a documentary on water in the West. The Colorado starts in Wyoming as the Green River, feeding elaborate canyon ecosystems, not to mention several thirsty states. As part of our series on the Green River, Wyoming Public Radio's Melody Edwards looks at the responsibility of headwater states to keep that river ecology healthy as the climate gets hotter and drier. Rancher Eric Barnes and his family live on Fontenelle Creek, 
near Kemmer in southwest Wyoming. It's a ranch his father built in the 1950s. It's a really beautiful place because it's kind of in the foothills of the desert. And it backs onto the mountains where the creek flows down to join the Green River in Fontenelle Reservoir. While droughts have devastated crops in the southwest over the last few years, Barnes was having the opposite problem. I had been needing to rebuild all my diversions because they'd been blowed out just from high water in the last few years. And I didn't know how I was going to afford to do all these projects because all the diversions needed worked on. His flood-damaged irrigation gates were expensive to replace. So he turned to Trout Unlimited, who helped him turn his surplus water into a moneymaker. They helped him apply for a new multi-state pilot program through the Upper Colorado River Commission that pays water rights holders like Barnes not to irrigate. Wyoming Trout Unlimited Director Corey Toy says while more flow in the stream will help droughts downstream, it'll also help Wyoming's wildlife that suffered from a 15-year drought. In Wyoming, you know, agriculture and cold water fisheries overlay each other extensively, and in fact, some of our most important fisheries are on private land. And Toy says, sure, Wyoming hasn't been hit by drought as hard as lower states, but it has still hurt some fish populations. There are tributaries where we've seen extended low flows over the last couple of years. Those low flows are threatening the extinction of several native fish species downstream. But Toy says high mountain ranchers are in a great position to help conserve the Colorado River for such species. He says after they've cut their hay, ranchers have water to spare. These landowners that participated were able to increase the value of their private water right last season. There was a value associated with leaving it in the stream that the Upper Colorado River Commission compensated them for. And compensated them well. Rancher Eric Barnes wouldn't say exactly how much he was paid not to irrigate, but the two-year program was funded at $2.7 million to go to a few lucky ranchers in the four upper basin states. Barnes was one of only five in Wyoming. Colorado River Conservation Director Steve Wolf at the Wyoming State Engineer's Office says it's not a new concept. This type of program, system conservation following, has been ongoing in Lower Basin for a long time. They do it basically every year. They're very efficient at it. We've never really tried it in the Upper Basin. But river ecologist Ellen Wool at Colorado State University says paying ranchers for their water won't protect the river's ecology forever. I think it's a great idea to pay farmers not to use as much water or not to farm marginal lands. It's just a little bit vulnerable to economic fluctuations. Like when the price of beef goes up and ranchers are less motivated to sell their water. She says the bigger threat to water conservation comes from states themselves. Governor Matt Mead plans to stockpile Wyoming's share of water by building 10 new water storage projects in the next 10 years. And the state of Colorado means to build more dams, too. That approach seems schizophrenic to ecologist wool. If you view the Colorado River as an ecosystem, that ecosystem has to have a certain amount of water if it's going to persist. So you can't take all the water in the upper basin and, and basically have nothing get into the lower basin. Wool votes for removing dams, not building more, since they block the movement of wildlife and sediment. She says it's time to let the Colorado return to its former shape with more floodplains, pools, and curves. Rancher Eric Barnes says many of his neighbors consider this crazy talk. A lot of people are skeptical because it's dealing with your water right. And you can't blame anybody for being skeptical because water's life. He says personally he hopes the Upper Colorado River Commission decides to adopt the water conservation program permanently.
He appreciates the fact that his hay still gets watered and he's got cash in his pocket. For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Melody Edwards. The American Cancer Society has awarded a University of Wyoming researcher nearly $800,000 for what he hopes will be groundbreaking cancer research. Daniel Levy is an assistant professor in molecular biology. He tells me that he's been studying cancer cells for a number of years. We're really interested in, um, in cells, in cell biology, and in particular, um, a structure found within most cells called the nucleus. Um, and so the nucleus is this compartment that contains the DNA, um, that contains our genetic material. Um, and uh, what we're interested in is about the structure of the nucleus. And so what's been known for a long time is that in cancer cells, the nucleus becomes larger. And actually, um, pathologists use this change in nuclear size um, as a key parameter to diagnose cancer. And so while it's been known for a long time that nuclei become larger in cancer, um, what we don't know is if that change in nuclear size is actually important for the development or progression of the disease. And so we're really trying to ask that question, does this change in nuclear size, is it important for cancer development? And if it is important, um, is this actually something we can target as a novel way to treat cancers? So what you would possibly do is go in there and see if you can keep it from growing or, or shrink the size or something that's like exactly that. That's exactly right. Yep, that's right. That's right. So yeah, if we could find ways to, to reduce the size of the nucleus, might that stop the growth of the cancer or maybe prevent it from becoming more um, malignant, more aggressive? Is it, nobody's ever done this kind of research before? No, this is, this is actually pretty novel. It's interesting because people have known about this change in nuclear size in cancer for decades. And like I said, pathologists use this as a very standard way for, for diagnosing cancer. Um, but no one's really looked at, at or asked this question of if this change in size might be important for the development of the, of the disease. And part of the issue really is that um, we have a very um, sort of poor understanding of what controls nuclear size. And so if we don't understand the mechanisms that control nuclear size, it becomes difficult to, to manipulate size. I, I always hesitate to get too much into inside baseball, but but how will you proceed on something like this? Will you need a, a, a subject or something like that? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So so for sort of getting at the question of does nuclear size affect um, affect the growth growth of cancers, the approach that we take is to use um, um, tissue culture cells. So basically, human cells that we're able to grow in a dish in the lab, and we can manipulate these cells so we can. Um, um, uh, through various experimental approaches, alter the expression of proteins in these cells. And so our approach will be to increase or decrease the expression of certain proteins that we know change the size of the nucleus. And then we can ask questions about how that changes the growth properties of those cells. Mm -hmm. So, you know, cancer cells grow rapidly. We can take a cancer cell in a dish, um, uh, manipulate it to reduce the size of the nucleus, and ask if now these cells don't, don't grow as much. Mm -hmm. This seems like a significant grant. Am I wrong about that? It, it, this, uh, you must be very excited about this. I'm, I'm super excited about this, um, this grant from the American Cancer Society. Um, 
this this research, we've been doing this research in my lab really since I first started here about four at the University of Wyoming about four years ago. Um, but to actually have the funding <laughs> to to pursue it um, further. Uh, is is really exciting. So this should take us out for another four or five years, basically. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask. So the, you, this will be about a five-year effort then? Yep, yep, exactly. And we'll see where that takes us. And, you know, hopefully with, with any kind of research, we'll, we'll have new questions that will arise and we'll have new data that will allow us to apply for future cycles of grant funding and continue to pursue this research. So if you can figure out a way to reduce this, mm-hmm. you might be able to help some people. That's that's the hope at least. Yeah. I mean it's still I'll admittedly it's still a ways off from there, but the hope is that we'll get sort of the basic um, the basic molecular understanding of what's going on. And if the promise if the, the results are promising, um, we might be able to start to develop these more therapeutic approaches, probably in collaboration with others, but but that would be the ultimate goal. Very exciting. Dr. Levy, thanks for taking time to visit with us. Yeah, thanks a lot. Right now, most Jackson Elementary students attend one school in kindergarten through second grade and another for third through fifth grades. But with a new school in the works there, district officials are considering making all of the town's elementary schools K through 5. That raises a big question about the future of the district's popular dual language immersion program. Next week, the school board will decide whether the program will move to become housed in a single magnet school. Wyoming Public Radio's Aaron Schrank reports. So let's practice by turning these and these eyes to eyes with your language partners. In a kindergarten classroom at Jackson Elementary, students sit in pairs swapping stories. Each pair includes a kid who speaks Spanish at home and one who speaks English. I'm really passionate about this dual immersion program because it's an amazing opportunity for kids to come together. Here in Chris Bessonette's classroom, these 20 kids speak and learn in English. But Bessonette has a partner teacher in the room next door. My name is Katie Schultz. The kids call me Maestra Schultz. I teach in Spanish and Chris teaches in English. So we have two groups of children and halfway through the day they switch so that 50% of their day is in Spanish and 50% of their day is in English. For young English speakers, Schultz says the program offers the chance to be bilingual an important skill in Jackson and around the country. But it can be really hard for them at the beginning because they are five or six years old and they don't know what I'm saying and I don't switch over to to English for them. But she says that forces kids to adapt and work together in ways they wouldn't in other classrooms. And for Spanish speakers, Bessonette says the program can provide educational foundations in the students' first language to foster deeper learning. Spanish-speaking students come into the room and school is kind of an intimidating place for them, but half the day they get to be the leaders, the, the kids that know what's going on, and that scenario doesn't happen in a non-dual immersion classroom. Those kids are oftentimes playing catch-up the first month, the first year, the first five years of school. School district officials say native Spanish speakers in the program earn higher average standardized test scores than those not in the program. As demand for dual language learning surges around the country, Jackson's seven-year-old program remains one of just a handful in the Cowboy State. 
But its appeal is growing in a town where the young school-aged population is nearly split between native Spanish and English speakers. We consistently have anywhere from one and a half times to two times as many people apply as we have space available. Chad Ransom is Teton County School District's Director of Second Language Services. At some point, the program becomes big enough to fill a whole school, so that becomes part of that conversation. That conversation is the one the school board is having about how to best design a new elementary school and fix the district's capacity issues. Ransom says if they decide to have three separate K-5 through schools in Jackson, it makes sense for one of them to be a dual-immersion magnet school. It's really difficult to continue to develop curriculum and professional development for teachers and you know having coherent model when you're across multiple schools. Right now, dual-immersion students attend Jackson or Coulter Elementary. Thomas Ralston teaches third graders in the program, and he says a whole school model would allow the students to be more, well, immersed. And that has pros and cons. If kids grew up in a pure dual environment where everybody was on the track to being bilingual, that would be very, very powerful. Um, The con to that is I really worry that there is going to be some sort of stereotype about, oh, you know, you go to this school or you're in dual or you're not in dual. and, And I just don't want people to feel left out. Ralston says this program has huge social benefits, and he doesn't want to see those walled off. This small community here really has a chance to be a model of true acceptance because the kids that grew up here not only grew up with kids that spoke Spanish, but grew up learning that culture and grew up learning that language. Um, The best part of being in the dual immersion program is that you can learn two languages. Third grader Sarah Jorgensen has been learning in two languages since kindergarten. And the worst part is that you have to do math and Spanish and it's harder to learn that way. Sarah's dad, Mike Jorgensen, says he's been thrilled with his daughter's learning, but he'd be disappointed to see the dual immersion program move to its own magnet school. The program within the the normal setup of the elementary school has been great for everything else that comes with being a third grade student, you know, the social side and and her friends that aren't in the program. So it keeps a, a level of normalcy, I think. So I guess just personally, I would prefer that didn't occur. The Teton County School District says all parents and community members can weigh in. There's a survey open on the district's website and a public workshop Monday night at the district office. The school board will consider that input when it votes on the future of Jackson's dual immersion program on Wednesday. For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Aaron Schrank. When we come back, we'll go to Gillette, where an unconventional campaign to discuss suicide has been launched. This is Open Spaces.
Welcome back to Open Spaces. I'm Bob Beck. And I'm Caroline Ballard. Suicide is hard to talk about everywhere. Here in Wyoming, where cowboy culture values strength and self-reliance, it can be even harder. That stigma can stop people who are considering self-harm from getting the help they need. Recently, a group in the city of Gillette launched an unconventional campaign to make it easier to talk about suicide. As part of our series on suicide in the state, Wyoming Public Radio's Miles Bryan reports. Gillette mom Trish Simonson never wanted a tattoo. That changed when her son Caden died by suicide last May. Now her left wrist is adorned with a Bible verse and a semicolon symbol, along with some text. And it says Caden 5815, and it says, ask my story. Trish's 25-year-old daughter Ashley has a fresh tattoo as well. She and her brother both loved Harry Potter, so a mythical creature from the books is now inked on her right arm. And it has the word companion on it. Uh, That's what his name meant, so I use the semicolon to be the I in companion. A semicolon is where an author could end a sentence but chooses not to. In Trish and Ashley's tattoos, the symbol represents the will to keep going. It comes from Project Semicolon, a national movement that started in 2013 to raise mental health awareness through semicolon tattoos. Ashley decided to bring the semicolon campaign here after her brother died. You normally see people with tattoos who have struggled. That's how they show it. And so I thought that bringing the semicolon movement here to Gillette would be a great way to show that, um, you know, it's, it's everywhere. It's with everyone. Yeah, it's probably a little extra sensitive today because it's day two in a row she's getting tattooed. John Harvey is the owner and chief artist at Felony Inc., a Gillette tattoo shop. Back in September, Trish and Ashley Simonson approached a bunch of tattoo places in the city to see if they were interested in being part of the semicolon campaign. But Harvey was the only taker. I want to give, you know, the community and the kids in the community something to, you know, be able to talk about, be able to share. Because they'll come up to them and be like, wow, you got a semicolon tattoo. Why? So it helps them to open up and share their problems and their experiences. The response was bigger than anybody expected. Harvey's shop inked over 180 semicolon tattoos in September alone, with the proceeds going to the Campbell County Suicide Prevention Coalition. And Felony Inc. became a space where people could talk about stuff like depression, anxiety, and suicidal thoughts. John Harvey gave out his personal number to everyone who got the semicolon tattoo. I've actually had people call me, you know, and I'm just someone there that they can talk to, a shoulder to lean on. And I'll definitely listen to anybody, you know, so. But Harvey is not a trained counselor. And Gillette, like much of Wyoming, is short on professional mental health services. Spring Wilkins is with Wyoming's Prevention Management Organization, which works on statewide anti-suicide efforts, among other things. We have one full MD psychiatrist working out of the hospital, and we've not been able to add anything to that. And I'm really surprised because it's such a high need. Wilkins says her organization's current budget is smaller than its last one, and with the state facing a massive revenue shortfall, more cuts are possible. Wilkins says the semicolon campaign is not a substitute for having enough mental health workers or psych hospital beds, but it can reduce the stigma around mental health issues so that the resources that are here, like medication, are used by the people who need them. We would never think twice about taking medication to get our insulin, you know, back in balance or our cholesterol back in balance. But to take a medication to get your serotonin back in balance is somehow wildly different in people's perspectives. That's a really unfortunate thing. Back at the Simonson home, Trish and Ashley keep lots of pictures of their late son and brother Caden around. He was very athletic. He was very athletic. He 
was gifted. They're proud of the conversations about suicide they've started around town with the semicolon tattoo campaign. But Ashley says Caden's memory drives them to do a whole lot more. It doesn't, it doesn't stop for us. It, it is a continuous struggle and, and it, it hurts. Like every day it hurts just as much as the day before. Ashley says eventually she wants to start a community mental health center in town. For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Miles Bryan. We'll wrap things up today hearing from Laramie poet Lori Howe, reading her piece, Twilight and Dawn. I wake each morning in the half-darkness of moon filtered through trees. The moon is unconcerned by states that I always take personally. It knows fullness and lack are guiltless and temporary, knows not to privilege one or lament the other. Dawn is a violet poem I have memorized. Twilight, its translation, on the opposite page. In the blue shadow of morning, the sky is a lavender envelope into which I fit perfectly. No differentiation between my body and bare cottonwoods, granite, or frost-flocked wheat. If you could look a thousand miles to where I stand in the Laramie dawn, if you looked with all your breath, you'd see a faint outline of woman, lupin-colored, a patch cut from morning, leaning into day as though growing toward you. That piece from Laramie poet Lori Howe called Twilight and Dawn from her new book, Cloudshade, Poems of the High Plains. Thanks for listening to this edition of Open Spaces. If you missed any part of the show or want to hear individual segments again, you can find them on our website at wyomingpublicmedia.org. Anna Rader is our web editor. We also invite you to sign up for our podcast on that website or iTunes. And you can follow all of our reporters on Twitter and like our news Facebook page. Next week, we'll look back at 10 years of Open Spaces and replay some of our top stories. Open Spaces is a production of Wyoming Public Radio News.